want you to come with me please to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Hebrews, James, 1, 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John. 1 John, 3 chapter. And we're just going to read one verse at this time. And that is verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. In this short series of messages entitled Satan or Adversary, although not an exhaustive one, Yet, so far, we have looked at the creation of Satan, we have looked at the character of Satan, and the campaign of Satan. And today, this morning and this evening, we're going to look at the conquering of Satan. That's worth an amen, isn't it? And this comes about in two ways. comes about through Christ and through His church through Christ and through His church. And we're going to look at the first part this morning and the second part tonight. Through Christ, first of all. And through His life, through His death, and through His resurrection. That spelt disaster for the evil one. That was the beginning of the end. He is a defeated foe. We want to see today how He was and is conquered. First of all, through Christ, through the perfection of His life. Through the perfection of His life. Jesus was the most perfect man who ever lived upon the face of the earth. He was perfect spiritually. He was sinless. There was no sin nature within Him. There was no old man within Christ. He was pure and holy, and absolutely sinless. He was perfect physically. Can you imagine a human being who is perfect physically? No ailment, no weakness, no nothing that would debilitate him in any shape, form, or fashion. Lived in complete and total perfect health all the time he was on the face of the earth. He was perfect mentally and emotionally. There never was a moment when he felt out of control. Sometimes we do emotionally. We feel out of control. And sometimes we have bouts of anger or jealousy or rage or whatever it may be. Jesus never ever experienced that. Yes, he was angry, but it was righteous anger. But not simply because of his flesh. And so he is perfect Man And for course, he was the God-man. He was fully God and he was fully man. Paul says in Philippians 2, that's why he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so, in fact, he was so perfect, so sinless and so pure that he could say with full confidence and total conviction, the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. No other 
human being on earth or in history could ever have said that. The prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. Adam couldn't say it. We know that Adam fell. We know that the enemy got a stronghold in his life. We know that Noah couldn't say it either. Even though Noah was a righteous man. And even though in the end it was only Noah and his immediate family that was saved. And beginning with Noah again and his family that God would repopulate the whole earth. But yet even as a righteous man, as a good man, as a holy man, as a man who loved God and obeyed God. And yet for all of that, Satan got a foothold in his life. After the flood, it says he grew a vineyard and he got drunk. And his son, Ham, uncovered his nakedness. And Ham's son was cursed because of it. And so, we see that not even Noah could say that. Moses, who was the meekest man that ever lived, even he could not say that Satan didn't have a foothold in his life. There came a point, meek and all as he was, patient and all as he was, there came a point where he absolutely lost his temper and he struck the rock twice and he, he took the glory of God actually. He just must we fetch water out of this rock as if it was his power and his might. Abraham, the friend of God, the father of the faith, not even he could say that. He lied about his wife, told a king that was his sister to save his own skin. David certainly couldn't say that. Lovely man of God that he was, greatest king of Israel that he was, and yet his affair with Bathsheba showed us his weakness. Isaiah couldn't even say it. The most holy of all of the prophets said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And certainly Peter couldn't say it. Peter even denied he knew Jesus. And even the great apostle Paul, the greatest apostle that ever lived, the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived, even he could not say it. First Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, Romans 3.23, that there is none righteous, and he included himself in that, not even one. Adam at his strongest in the most perfect environment, Eden, still succumbed to the temptations of the evil one. And yet Jesus, in the midst of a wilderness, and at his weakest physically, after a 40-day fast, Jesus overcame the devil in all of his temptations and had a great victory. Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. And we said before in this series that place here means ground, topos, topography, ground, territory. And we see that Jesus, even after all that he suffered, 
all the rejection, all the pain, all the hurt, all of that, his character being assassinated, his reputation being trashed, all of that at the hands of men. And yet, never once did he ever give place to the devil. What a perfect life he lived. And then secondly, he conquered Satan by the propitiation of his death. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the word propitiation there means atoning sacrifice. Jesus taking our place. You see, what Jesus did in this life, if, if I could use this term, and I use it advisedly, he did it primarily for himself. Say, so what do you mean? In order to fully and completely obey the Father, in order to fully and completely be the righteous, sinless, holy one, he overcome those temptations and those trials and those tests in that 33 years of his life. Yes, ultimately it was for us, but primarily in his life, it was for himself. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And yes, it is true that in his life, it was and is a great example to us on how we can overcome and defeat the evil one in our lives. But that was a, a byproduct, as it were, of his perfect life, of being the perfect man. But what Jesus did in his death was for us. He didn't die on the cross as our example. He died as our substitute. He went in our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. We've just sang this morning. Surely the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. And so when he went on that cross, it was vicarious. It was for us. He died in our place for us in John chapter 12. If I can just briefly look at this. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for, etern keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven saying, came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he should die. And so we see here that he died for our sake. There used to be an old song. I think Phanaya used to sing it in here. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, for Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Aren't you glad for that today? And so he defeated Satan by the perfection of his life, by the propitiation of his death, but also by the power of his resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching in the day of Pentecost. And what a sermon that was. Imagine the first sermon you ever preached and you get 3,000 people saved. That would be a good start, wouldn't it? Not many gets that start. So Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Note this, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may be not shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. The resurrection of Christ is not only a non-negotiable fact, it was a non-preventable certainty. Did you hear me? It was a non-preventable certainty. Death could not hold Jesus. Verse 24, it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was impossible. Once Jesus had become a sin offering on the cross, once Jesus cried, it is finished, once he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, then no power on earth or under the earth could prevent Jesus from rising again from that tomb. Nothing could stop that. All the hosts of hell were powerless How could the spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, how could that not be raised up again? How could that body, that body be claimed by the dust of the earth that God promised that His Holy One should not see corruption? It's impossible. In fact, it would have been a greater miracle if Jesus had not arisen from the dead. Jesus had never 
any doubt whatsoever that he would rise again from the dead. <laughs> Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Glory to God. You see, in God's economy, life is not the exception to the rule of death, but rather death is the exception to God's rule of life. See, the, the resurrection is often seen as God interrupting the rule of death. The truth is that death, which is the result of sin, is the interruption to God's rule of life. God's rule is life. Whenever Jesus, whenever God made Adam in his image, he made him to live forever. I, I don't think that we think of that too often. He made him actually to live forever. Adam was made that he would never die. It was only when he fell in sin, that's when God had to put a guard against a tree of life, lest he partake of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state. But God originally intended mankind to live forever. Adam, in his original state, was not mortal. Mortal means death, doomed, subject to death. He wasn't in his original state. And if he had not ascended, he would have lived forever and forever and forever. But of course, that life, that glorious life, that abundant life, that was his, that was God's rule. That was God's full intention. So you can see that when sin came into the human race, such havoc, such destruction that it brought, so many billions have died because of sin. That was never God's intention. And so death, the grim reaper, as we call it, was the interrupter of God's rule of life. But you see, the problem is that death in our thinking has become the rule. And it's easy to understand why that is because it's so universal. It's so daily. There's not a one of us in here or listening to my voice that has not had a loved one die. Many of us have seen, been there when our loved ones has breathed their last breath. We have seen it with our eyes. We have felt it. It's tangible. It's real. And because it is real and tangible and we can see it physically before us, then we think that's the rule. But it isn't the rule. That's the interruption to God's rule of life. And so in our thinking, the resurrection often becomes the exception to the rule. Paul didn't think this. At Paul's defense before Agrippa, he said, why do you think it's incredible that God should raise the dead? What's so extraordinary about that? Is that not God's rule? Life? Did not God come to man with life? 
did they not breathe into his nostrils the breath of life? Even Jesus says, I am come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, but even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was a non-preventable certainty. Nothing and no one could stop it. Once he was put into that tomb, once that grave stone was pushed over the mouth of that tomb, nothing was going to prevent him rising again. Nothing. You know, Easter's so important to the church, isn't it? And that's the reason why it is so important. When it comes to Easter, we preach on the resurrection. It's such a vital part of our Christianity. Take the resurrection away, what have we got left? Nothing. If in this life only we have hope, we're of men most miserable. So why was the resurrection an unpreventable certainty? Why was it that it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Well, first of all, because of His own inherent power. I am the resurrection and the life. I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. That resurrection power was in Christ. And it was through the power of the Holy Spirit, I might add. The same Spirit that raised Jesus up from the grave will quicken, make alive our mortal flesh, will raise up, rise up, will cause us to be raised up from the dead. I am He that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death, Jesus said in Revelation. What a powerful statement that was. And he showed that he had that power of resurrection life when he raised those three from the dead in the Gospels, giving us a little foretaste of the power. And so all of us, at some point or other, saw a loved one going into a grave. But when you're a believer, the Bible says we sorrow not as those who have no hope. But we believe that one day, God will raise them up. It'll happen in a moment, in an instant, in a twinkling. Bang, suddenly, we'll be raised up. What a wonderful, wonderful gospel we have got. What a great hope God has given us through the resurrection. And so it was an unpreventable certainty because of his own inherent power and because of God's prophetic word. Psalm 16. That's where Peter quoted from in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Psalm 16 and 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. 
or the grave or the abode of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And even though David was initially talking about himself, but then suddenly he's speaking prophetically about Christ. And Peter, reading those scriptures, knew full well by the power of the Holy Spirit whom he was talking about. And in the flow and in the midst of his preaching that great day of Pentecost, suddenly that scripture becomes alive in his heart. And he sees it. And he understands it in a moment that David was talking about Christ, the Lord Jesus. And he preaches it and he quotes it. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus referring, of course, to those three days and three nights before he rose again, before he showed himself to others. See, it was according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, let me read it to you. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And you could take your Bible, and you could take your concordance, and you could do a little word study, and you could find out where those Scriptures are that Paul is talking about according to the Scriptures. You see, God spoke prophetically hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before even Christ was on the earth, that He would come and that He would die and that He would be buried and that He would be risen again the third day and it would be according to the prophetic word, according to the Scriptures that was given. See, we can trust God's Word no matter how long it takes. And then finally, because of His known inheritance power, because of God's prophetic word and because of His personal purity, because of His holiness. Psalm 16 and 10, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Very important that. In Romans 1 verses 3 and 4, it says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. See how Paul here equates his rising from the dead with the Spirit of holiness. It was important that he lived a perfect life life, that he did 
no sin, that no sin would be found in him. And so he was raised again with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Because of his own inherent power, because of God's prophetic word, and because of his personal purity. Thank God he has defeated the evil one. One final scripture in Colossians chapter 2. Well, let me read from verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, note this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Glory to God. Christ triumphed over Satan publicly, made a spectacle of them. And the early church knew that truth so very, very well indeed. They understood that the enemy has been conquered, defeated forever, eternally. And right now he awaits his execution. I was watching the other night, maybe you saw that on ITV, where Trevor McDonald was in Indiana State Prison. He's interviewing those on death row who were awaiting their execution. And he says, one day they will get the call and they will know the day and they will know the hour. Wouldn't that be awful, sitting waiting on that for years and years? Satan has been waiting thousands of years and he's on death row and he knows that that call is going to come any day and that moment will arrive and there's no escaping it and he'll take that long walk and they'll be cast alive into the lake of fire. Glory to God. And so Christ has defeated him. What about the church? Because his defeat is twofold. It's through Christ, and it's through the church. And God willing, we'll talk about that tonight. We'll see his defeat, his twofold defeat through Christ, and through his church on earth. Let's pray.